Hiya, welcome to another episode of Dark and Spooky, a horror podcast with me, Miss Dark and Spooky, aka The Girl Next Door. This episode, we're going to go down a little bit of a different route, still going to stay horror, but over the next five episodes, I'd say, I'm going to be doing some unsolved mysteries, some you may have heard of. Some you may have not. But are we all sat comfortable? Are we ready for the first ten? Let's do it. Unsolved. 
1949. On June 4, 2010, seven-year-old Kieran Horman was dropped off at Skyland Elementary School in Portland, Oregon by his stepmother Terry. She stayed with him as he attended the school's science fair and walked him down the hall to his class and then left around 8.45. However, he was never seen in his first class and was instead marked as absent that day. 3.30 come round, Terry and her husband Kane walked with their daughter to the bus stop to meet him. The bus driver told them that the boy had never boarded the school bus after school and to call the school to ask where he might be. Terry did ring, only to be informed by the school secretary that as far as anyone knew there, he had not been at school and that he had been marked absent. Realising then that the boy was missing, the secretary called the police. The search party for Kieran was extensive and primarily focused on the two mile radius around Skyland Elementary and on Solvi Island, which lies six miles away. The search for Kieran was happened over a 10 day period, was the largest in Oregon history and included over 1,300 searchers from Oregon, Washington and California. Our reward posted for information leading to the discovery of him was initially to $25,000, which rose to 50000 in July 2010. Despite the long search, no evidence was ever found. Legal proceedings, including a lawsuit from his mother, Desri Young, alleging that Terry Holman is responsible for the disappearance of Kieran, are still ongoing. However, his whereabouts and the circumstances surrounding his disappearance are still a mystery. parties and Sunday worship, all organised by the church she and her family attended. Cynthia's father, Michael Anderson, described his daughter as a quiet and obedient kind of girl who never made waves yet had lots of friends. Cynthia was also a very attractive young woman and even though her parents had very strict rules, she had a boyfriend who was also a member of the church. That summer, her father reported that Cynthia was spending a lot of time on her face and becoming a bit of a debutante. Cynthia worked as a legal secretary in Ohio, but was preparing to quit to attend Bible College, the same one her boyfriend attended. By the way her job was going, her last day couldn't come soon enough. The previous year, on a wall across from Cynthia's desk that was viewable from outside the window, someone had spray painted the words, I love you Cindy, 
in large letters with the smaller by GW in the corner. Cynthia was the only Cindy on that side of the strip mall where the graffiti was located. It seemed intentionally placed so that only Cynthia could see it. However, Cynthia had no idea who GW could have been. The message remained there for six months until it was eventually covered up. The message appeared again, this time in bigger letters, but it became the least of Cynthia's problems. During the summer of 1981, Cynthia was being harassed by a number of anonymous phone calls with disturbing messages. This frightened her and she began experiencing nightmares about being attacked by a man. It got so bad that her job even installed an emergency butter at her desk and she kept her office doors locked at all times. Unfortunately, these precautions wouldn't be enough. On August 4th, 1981, Cynthia skipped breakfast and left her parents' house around 8.30 to go to work. She arrived at the law office and was seen as late as 9.45. Around lunchtime, her employer, James Rabbit, arrived at the office. The lights and radio were on, but there was no sign of Cynthia. The scent of nail polish remover hung in the air. There was no note and the phones were still ringing off the hook. There were no signs of struggle and according to the reports, the office door was still locked from the inside. Though her car was still in the parking lot, her keys and purse were missing. Eerily, a romance novel that Cynthia was reading was left open at her desk to a page where the protagonist was abducted at knife point. Cynthia Anderson was never found and her case remains unsolved. decomposing forearm to its owner. They quickly alerted police and this prompted a police search and a body was soon found afterwards atop of a cliff. The body was identified as Jeanette De Palma, a 16-year-old girl who was missing for six weeks. The satanic panic grew fast and fierce. The hill where she was discovered was covered with occult symbols and many were led to believe that her body was placed on a makeshift altar. Many locals and even some police officers pointed their fingers at an alleged coven of witches who were rumoured to have used De Palma for human sacrifice. Others said it was a satanic group. Because of a flood, many of the case's details have been destroyed. However, some reports from the local papers mentioned that police couldn't determine the cause of death due to the body's decomposition. Authorities investigated a local homeless man who was a prime suspect, only to find no connection to the killing. 
Many believe that De Palma may have provoked a group of Satan worshipping teens at her high school since she was involved with a group that helped drug addicts find their faith in Christ. To this day, her death remains unsolved. Since then, a number of severed feet had washed ashore to since then belonging to five men, one woman, and three of unknown sex. Throughout the years, the case still remains a mystery, with many theories floating around the general public and the media as to who the feet belonged to. The Vancouver police managed to identify one foot in 2008, matching its DNA to a man who was described as suicidal. The authorities were then able to match two other found feet to a woman who was also believed to have committed suicide. Because of these findings, many speculate that the feet belong to those who jumped off a bridge to their deaths. However, because of the rarity of only feet and no other body parts showing up, some believe that these they were the ones of the victims of the tsunami in 2004, since the makes of all the shoes were manufactured before 2004. Whatever the source these feet are coming from, they have left the world and authorities stumped. that he rarely spoke and that when people addressed him 
was simplistic in monosyllables. According to rumours, he was from France. Even though he was fluent in French, he communicated mostly with grunts and gestures, rarely using the little English that he knew. When asked about his background, he would abruptly end the conversation. Upon his death from cancer in 1889, the Leatherman's true identity remained unknown and is still a mystery to this day. got off the train at Days Road Terminus in Grange, a suburb of Brisbane, Australia. She was attending classes at the University of Queensland, started her short walk home after getting off a train. However, she would never arrive. Her badly beaten body was found on the corner of Carberry and Thomas Streets in the garden of a house at 5.35am the next morning by a policeman who lived nearby. At the time, it became one of Queensland's most notorious investigations ever. Despite many theories, her murder is still unsolved. And as of today, there is still a 50,000 US reward for a suspect. Despite it being a paradise for the woolly critters, rumours of a haunted spirit prevented shepherds from ever staying overnight. In 1896, the Board of Trade funded the construction of a lighthouse on the largest of the Flannel Islands, Lone Moor, in December 1899. The lighthouse was completed and lit for the first time. Four lighthouse keepers were assigned to maintain the lighthouse and work a rotation of six weeks on two weeks off. This meant there were always three men on the island at the same time. In December 1900, the three men on the island were 43-year-old principal keeper James Ducat, and who had a wife, four children and 20 years experience. The 40-year-old occasional keeper, Donald MacArthur, who was married and covering for the first assistant keeper who was on sick leave 
and the 28-year-old second assistant keeper, Thomas Marshall. The fourth keeper, Joseph Moore, was off duty. Around midnight on December 15, the steamship Arcta passed by the Isles. Captain Holman noticed he could not see the light from the lighthouse, even though the conditions should have allowed him to. When the Arcta arrived in port, they reported the light's absence, and even though this was never communicated to the Northern Lighthouse Board, on December 26, the lighthouse tender ship Hesperus made a routine visit to Lenormois. When nearing the island, Captain James Harvey found it odd that the Scottish flag had been removed from the flagpole. He then sounded the horn to get the attention of the three lighthouse keepers, but there was no response. They then attempted firing a flare, but again no response. Joseph Moore was on board the Hillsborough's and with no signal coming from the island, he was sent ashore. Upon arriving at Illimar, East Landing, nothing appeared amiss, and everything seemed normal, just as he had left it. He went up the island to find the entrance gate, the entrance door, and the door after that all shut. However, the kitchen door was found open, and it was discovered that the fire had not been lit for several days. All of the clocks were stopped. I then entered the rooms in succession, Moore reported. I found the beds empty, just as they had left them in the early morning. The bodies of the three men were never found, and their disappearance still remains a mystery to this day. <laughs> shared space. Local witnesses reported having seen her on the 270 mile trail called Vermont's Long Trail that cuts through Vermont to the Canadian border. A search party was immediately formed but no clues were found on the trail. Soon after the Bennington Banner reported that tantalizing and unquestionable strange leads began to materialize. There was one in particular made by a Massachusetts waitress that she'd served an alleged young woman matching Paula's description. Upon learning on this lead, Paula's father disappeared for 36 hours, supposedly in pursuit of the lead. Nonetheless, the authorities thought it was strange and it led to him becoming a prime suspect in Paula's disappearance. Stories began circulating that Paula's home life was not nearly as idyllic and picturesque as her parents had initially reported to the police. Apparently, Paula had not returned home for Thanksgiving the week prior, and she may have been upset about a disagreement with her father. While claiming his innocence, 
Paula's father positioned a theory that Paula was distraught about a boy she liked at school and that perhaps the boy should have been a suspect. Over the next decade after Paula's disappearance, a local Bennington man twice bragged to friends that he knew where Paula's body was buried. However, he was unable to lead the police to anybody. With no evidence of a crime, no body and no forensic clues, the case went cold and the fate of Paula Jean Wilden was never discovered. Despite their age differences, the two girls had an extremely close bond. Joanna liked to take care of Jacqueline and saw herself as the ultimate big sister. Since their mother was busy running the family's grocery delivery business, Joanna saw herself as a second mother to her little sister. They enjoyed playing dress up and pretend and generally enjoyed being around each other. Eerily, Joanna would always state that she would never grow up to become a lady. She would always say that she would remain a child forever. No one took her seriously and chalked it up to the child's creative imagination. On May 7, 1957, six-year-old Jacqueline and 11-year-old Joanna were walking to church with a young neighbourhood boy, as they often did. While they were walking, a car came up behind them and hit them going at an incredibly high speed, killing all three of the children. The Pollock sisters died instantly and the little boy they were there with died from his injuries at the hospital. The woman who was driving the car had just lost her children in a custody battle and was feeling angry and upset and was actually trying to take her own life. When learning about her children's death, Florence fell into a deep depression that lasted quite a long time. John, on the underhand, had the spiritual belief that the girls were in heaven or they'd be reincarnated. He said he would have dreams about the girls and often also felt some sort of presence in their bedroom. He claimed that every time he would go in there, he felt like he wasn't alone. John always had a fascination with reincarnation and would pray to God to bring his daughters back. Florence, on the other hand, was a very strict Catholic and never toyed with any of John's notions about reincarnation. This put such a strain on their relationship that they almost got a divorce. However, they stayed together and got pregnant again. From the beginning of the pregnancy, John thought that there were two babies, despite the doctor only claiming one. However, John would keep insisting that there were two, and the doctor was proved wrong on the day that the twins, Gillian and Jennifer, were born on October 4, 1958. Twins never ran in the family and Florence never felt like she had two fetuses growing inside her. 
eerily the newborn twins had the exactly same birthmarks that Joanna and Jacqueline had and it was that Florence started to seriously consider her husband's beliefs. When the twins were old enough to talk they began identifying and questioning toys that had belonged to their sisters who had passed on and would point out landmarks that only Joanna and Jacqueline would have known, like the school they attended. They would sometimes panic upon seeing cars and knew about street safety without either of their parents telling them. The story of the Pollock sisters made its way to Dr Ian Stevenson, a psychologist who studied reincarnation. After studying thousands of reincarnation cases, Dr Stevenson wrote a book telling of 14 cases he believed to have been real, including that of the Pollock sisters. Whether or not the actual occurrence of reincarnation exists is yet to be explained. Thank you.